everyone. I'm Grace Beatty, and welcome to Wicked Women, the podcast. Step back in time with me as we learn about some of the most infamous and maligned women in history. Speaking with leading experts, I will discuss these women's backstories and the circumstances that gave them the title of Wicked. In this season of Wicked Women, I will be focusing on some well-known and some lesser-known women in history who have acquired an unsavory reputation. In the end, this podcast does not look to excuse or dispute the wrongs committed by some of these women, but it is also not looking to completely villainize them. Instead, I hope this can be a conversation starter on the complicated legacies prescribed to women in history. In today's episode, I will analyze Marie de Bronvier, a French woman executed for poisoning her father, brothers, and others in the 15th century. Discussing Marie's life and legacy with me today will be Professor Benedetta Durami, a professor of law at California's Golden Gate University and a participating scholar in the book Women Criminals, an encyclopedia of people and issues. Continue listening to learn more about this little-known woman from history. On a hot, humid Parisian July day, the aristocratic Marie Marquise de Bronvier was carted out to the scaffold before a seething crowd. Marie was accused of poisoning over 50 people, including her own father and brothers. The massive crowd on July 17, 1676, had come to witness a common entertainment, an execution. Throughout history, witnessing an execution has been a common aspect of societal life. It served many different purposes, as a warning, of retribution, and for entertainment. The executions of murderers were particularly popular, as it showed a public punishment for a crime many viewed as reprehensible. Marie de Bronvier has run the gamut of public opinion, from femme fatale to hapless victim to hysterical woman to feminist icon. There may be a part truth in all these, but the real Marie never got to tell her own story. The legacy we have today has come to us through a tortured confession and journalistic flair. Marie Daubray was born in Paris in 1630 to a politically influential father, Antoine Drew Daubray, and his wealthy wife, Marie Ollier. The eldest of five children, Marie would grow up in a world of wealth and privilege. In her confession later in life, she would assert that she had been sexually assaulted at the age of seven, shattering her happy childhood. However, she would never name her attacker. In 1651, at the age of 21, Marie married Antoine Gobelin, Marquis de Bronvier, and it would have appeared that her life would take on the traditional narrative for aristocratic women. As Benedetta Dorami discusses... So what I find, um, what I found and what I still find more interesting um, about her is that her story starts off 
as a traditional one, right? And then it becomes very untraditional, if you want, because she was highly born, the eldest of five children. Her family belonged to the legal group of the magistracy, uh, which obviously retained at the time much prestige and reputation in the society. And, you know, like traditionally at that time, she was married off to a um, to Antoine Gobelin, that was a Marquis de Brenvier, at the only age of 17. And so that's when she joined the French aristocratic uh, entourage. And so the marriage, and that's again traditional, was most likely arranged between the families. And as it was back then, she was, you know, obviously portrayed as a woman of much attraction and intelligence. And her husband instead was depicted as a man without morals, a man without strong personal character, weak as water and unstable as sand. That's what, you know, the contemporaries ultimately wrote about him. And so, Again, very traditionally, within a few years of marriage, she became the mistress of an attractive young army officer, uh, Godin de Saint-Croix. And the affair uh, between the two of them was tolerated initially by her husband until it collided with his, in finan- with his financial interests. And so that's when actually... Um, her story becomes non-traditional and more interesting. Um, So that's what I find interesting, the fact that her story is incredibly traditional up until a certain point, but then becomes, you know, um, a very different uh, story and definitely not traditional and definitely not in line with what they were the with what the societal expectations were at the time. The Bronvier marriage appears to have been an open one, with both discreetly taking lovers throughout their early years together. Marie went on to have seven children, but after her trial and conviction, it was asserted that the majority were not legitimate. The date of Marie's meeting with Godin de Saint-Croix is not recorded, but by the early 1660s, they were involved in a scandalously public affair. By this point, Marie's husband was drowning in debt and would soon leave France to escape his creditors, leaving Marie to conduct her affair on her own terms. This state of event horrified Marie's father, Antoine d'Aubray. In an attempt to forcibly end his daughter's affair, Antoine affected a lettre de cachet, an arrest document signed by the king, and had Godin de Saint-Croix thrown in the Bastille. This is where the infamous story surrounding Marie began. Here is Benedetta. Basically what happened is that following her lover's advice, uh, Marie de Brembillet uh, began to actually consider initiating legal action to separate her fortune from the one of the husband that was, you know, dissipating their joint patrimony. Um, And that created a public scandal. Um, Her father and her two brothers concerned about the negative reputation that this could reflect on the entire family, uh, pressed Marie to break off the relationship. And despite the pressure from her family, she continued the relationship with um, Saint-Croix. And uh, that led her father to the extreme action of requesting the king to issue an order of arrest, which was in French called Lettre de Cachet. 
against Godin de Saint-Croix. And therefore, you know, her lover was publicly arrested and was transported to the fortress prison of the Bastille in Paris. And during his months of custody, he was trained by this Italian poisoner, Exili, uh, that had been accused of many crimes. And when he came out of custody, under his guidance, Marie de Brinvilliers began actually experimenting with lethal poisons. She started testing them on her own servants and on the patients of the Hotel de Dieu, that was the great public hospital. Um, And, you know, as many ladies uh, of the Parisian nobility at the time. She volunteered to visit the sick at the hospital, and so she was kind of allowed to wander around the halls. And apparently she was serving sweets and biscuits and wine to her unfortunate patients who invariably died soon afterwards. Through her work at the hospital in Paris, Marie began to perfect her arsenic-based poison with a very specific goal in mind. Benedetta elaborates. But she was still enraged with her own family, and she was aspiring to appropriate actually the entire family fortune, and that's why, and that's why uh, she poisoned her father in 1666, and then her two brothers in 1670. Although the crimes were not detected, the autopsies, in fact, stated that they had died of natural causes or what they called the malignant humor. Um, But in 1672, um, upon the mysterious death of her lover, that probably occurred in one of the lethal experiments that he was um, conducting, um, some incriminating letters and conclusive evidence against Marie de Brenvier were actually discovered by the police. So she left uh, and she fled to London and later to Holland. And then she finally, in 1675, was arrested in a convent in Liège and was transported back in France. After the mysterious death of Gordon de Saint-Croix, suspicion fell on Marie for the first time. After fleeing for England, Marie was arrested and brought back to Paris to stand trial on April 29, 1676. Benedetta delves into the details of Marie's trial. So, you know, during the trial, I think what it's interesting, by the way, is that she was initially denied the aid of a legal counsel. And so she stood alone in her own defense. And initially she refused, stubbornly refused to admit that she had poisoned her father and their two brothers. And in her defense, she proclaimed their innocence and accused actually her former lover of uh, Godin de Saint-Croix of having deceived her. Um, but the judges, you know, found her guilty. And then right before enduring the painful torture of water, and as we know, you know, when, you know, in those moments, it's unclear whether confession uh, comes out of you know, desperation and fear. Uh, but, you know, right before and during the painful torture of water, she ended up confessing to have poisoned her father and their two brothers, as well as attempted to poison her sister-in-law and her husband several times. Um, and she also admitted having committed the utmost crimes. Uh, and I think this is, by the way, going back to the non-traditional story, she basically said that she had committed those out of ambition for her family and their children. So she wanted to assure herself and her offspring, the family fortune, that her father instead had assigned entirely to his male successors. 
Um, so she was going against, you know, what the rules were back at the time. And so intention to ensure that her children could receive the education and the social ranking that they deserved, the Marquise de Brinvier had decided to poison her father and her brothers. But, you know, as I said before, her murder ultimately revealed that poisoning was actually an obscure cause of many mysterious deaths that had occurred in the elite society. And before execution, in fact, she said, out of so many guilty people, must I be the only one to be put to death? And yet, half the people in town are involved in this sort of thing, and I could ruin them if I were to talk. Uh, But she never uh, betrayed her accomplices and basically only admitted having used the arsenic, the vitriol, and the venom of Todd as poisons, and the milk as antidote. So, you know, she did confess, and it's definitely true that back at the time, you know, love potions and spells and uh, black magic and, you know, poisons were uh, used by, you know, some of these women ultimately to regain control, to be honest, of their personal lives and also of their finances, right? So she may have been guilty, I think, but ultimately I don't think that's the, that's the meaning of her story. Marie was found guilty of poisoning her father and brothers. On July 17, 1676, Marie de Bronvilliers was beheaded and her body was thrown on a pyre to be burned. Marie's death did not see the end of her legacy. Her trial and execution would draw attention to other recent mysterious deaths and officially begin what is now termed l'affaire de poison or the affairs of the poisons. This incident stretched from 1676 to 1682 and saw numerous aristocrats accused of poisonings and witchcraft. Marie's legal case captivated French audiences everywhere. Here is Benedetta on why she thinks Marie's trial caused such a sensation, not only in France, but around Europe. Oh, I think because ultimately, you know, um, it was something so extraordinary right and so in a way unexpected by someone that belonged to the aristocratic world although you know back then and that's when in fact the fair of the poisons started you know there were more and more members even of the aristocratic world that they were actually you know disappearing and they were you know poisoned right so actually this was just the beginning of the affair of the poisons but i think there was this sense of like fascination uh, in and around her, um, both on the side of, you know, uh, the criminal side, if you want, and on the side of she must have had, like, reasons to kind of behave that way. And I think to some extent, maybe you could probably start already seeing that her story was somewhat more a story of resistance and the story of agency than the story of um, simply of a criminal. Because a woman of such high origin and beauty and intelligence was considered not capable of such crimes. So I think it goes back to the same, you know, societal bias, if you want, right? And, And stigma that, you know, it was unthinkable that someone, you know, so gentle and so beautiful and so intelligent and coming from, you know, such a reputable milieu could be uh, capable of the most um, serious crimes. 
After her death, Marie's story was subsumed into national lore surrounding l'affaire de Puison and female killers. Marie's story continued to capture the public imagination, but the narrative built up around her usually focused more on society's own shock and horror at the capability of a woman to murder. As Benedetta points out, So I would say, you know, back at the time, um, and I think now, obviously, experts and scholars have a different outlook about her story, but definitely back at the time, um, you know, the perception was that someone like her of, you know, high origins and beauty and intelligence wouldn't be capable of murder and, and you know, and poisoning her own family members and attempting to poison, uh, as she apparently did, her sister-in-law and even her husband multiple times, right? And in fact, during the trial and after her confession, the uh, chief of the Paris, uh, the Paris uh, police, um, Nicolas Gabriel de la Reynier, he actually wondered, and here I'm just actually citing what he says, who would have believed it of this woman of highly respectable family, of a delicate little creature such as this with her apparently gentle disposition. So I think... You know, the the misconception obviously was that it was out of the imagination to uh, see someone like her coming from, you know, a respectable family and, you know, being a very delicate and gentle um, human being to be able and in fact to be capable of of doing of doing like that. But the misconception, I think, was also, you know, then it became a bit you know, broader because she was beheaded um, publicly and uh, burned on a pile of wood in 1676. And, you know, she was on the one hand considered like a dissolute criminal uh, until the day of her execution. But then she became kind of a martyr for the population. And in fact, one of her contemporaries noticed that at her decapitation, Crowds of people came and the entire city uh, came basically to see the spectacle, right? And the city had never been so aroused, so intent on a spectacle like that. And then apparently the next day, the same contemporary reported that the people were searching through the ashes for um, La Prenveillée's bones. So I think she had this, you know, um, very fascinating and perverse image from, you know, different kind of, Uh, members of the society. Today's society is still fascinated with killers, who they are, why they did it, how they did it. Media like podcasts, books, and television are filled with true crime stories from throughout history. In particular, society seems to be fascinated by women who kill, a fact that seems to both horrify and fascinate us. Female killers apparently break the mold of maternal feminine goodness to commit a crime of often brutal proportions. Benedetto discusses the public fascination with female criminals from history and in the present. Female that commit uh, murder have gone against the societal stereotype that basically pictures women as custodians of, you know, Uh, family peace and customs and morals and, you know, pictures them as nurturing members of the community and therefore incapable 
of the most serious crimes that they they have gone against this stereotype how is it possible that women that they are instead support to, supposed to be you know mothers well that they are in many cases mothers and therefore uh, they have a very nurturing um, and peaceful nature you know obviously again going back into the stereotypes how is it possible that they are capable of something so horrible benedetta reanalyzes marie de bronvier's story not as one of a heartless murderess but as one of female resistance in an era where power lay solely in the hands of men. Here's Benedetta. I wish that um, the story of Marie uh, de Brinvillier was seen as a story of female resistance and female agency. You know, as a matter of fact, uh, at the time, women often, as I mentioned before, resorted to poisons, love powders, and black magic to put an end to domestic abuse and and financial dependence, right? So the physical and verbal assaults perpetrated against them were often hidden behind closed doors and by the privacy that was accorded to family matters. And violence against women and even violence against children was actually irregularly employed by men in the households to control them and correct their faults. And so since the fifth century in Europe, harsh punishment and severe reprisals were actually encouraged uh, to any disobedient spouse to reestablish domestic peace. And spousal correction was not only performed based on the love of power, but also as a supreme sense of duty, as a form of, you know, exercising a sense of duty. That was obviously intertwined with the doctrine of couverture that restricted women's legal and economic agency under the protection and cover of their husbands, and therefore spousal correction eventually encompassed intimate abuse and created an imbalance in gender relationships. And so many women used love magic to obtain financial security, for example, and to have power over the spirit, the heart, and the goods of their husbands. And if the love spells turned out to be inadequate to achieve their goals, women then subsequently resorted to Venus potions and black rituals. And some of them, for example, aimed at remarrying for love, being aware that a second marriage could not be celebrated without ending the previous one. And even for the female members of the aristocracy and wealthy, powerful families, the chances of being granted a divorce were very slim. And even in the case that women were accorded a divorce, they typically would have not been able to marry again. So poisoning their husbands seemed to be a viable way for a lot of women to end unhappy and abusive marriages, as well as to regain control of the household finances and patrimonies. And so considering the unequal and subservient uh, subservient conditions that women endured during the 17th century in France, both from a legal standpoint and from a financial standpoint, it's not surprising that the poison became a weapon that was widely employed by women, in fact, to exercise their agency against paternal and spousal authority and abuse, right? And so in such a scenario, the story of Marie de Brandier and then the subsequent affair of the poisons ultimately unveiled, right, a French underworld of sacrilegious magic premeditated crimes of passion, but at the same time, women's resistance to patriarchy and social subordination. In 
In the end, Marie's legacy is a complicated one. Much evidence points to the fact that she did kill her father, brothers, and many innocent patients in hospitals. At the same time, when analyzed more deeply, her story does not appear black and white, a simple story of a hysterical woman on a murderous rampage. While Marie may not deserve exoneration, that opinion is up to you, her legacy does deserve a more holistic narrative. <laughs>